In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have some great topics lined up. We will start off by talking about the COVID uh, relief bill, and then we will cover uh, CPAC, or the Conservative Political Action Conference, which uh, just happened last week, and what that might mean for the uh, near-term future of the GOP. Um, And then we'll finish up by talking about uh, Biden's most recent or I guess I should say first military action as president uh, to bomb uh, Syria. So yeah, very, very packed episode. Um, Just a quick call out that if you like the show and you feel like supporting us, we would be honored to have your support over at our new Patreon page, which is uh, you can find at patreon.com slash the perspectrum. Yeah, we'd be really honored and feel really lucky to have to have your support over there. And uh, you get uh, the cool perk of extra content. Um, we we, we uh, always talk for a little bit after every uh, show that we record. And we have been recording that video and posting it on uh, Patreon. So if you become a patron, you get to watch that. It's more of us. It's more content. Yeah. And that's what you're here for. Imagine us more unfiltered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you get over there. Yeah, exactly. So, Michael, let's get started with the COVID numbers before we get into uh, uh, what we're going to do about it. Okay, that sounds great. Um, Yeah, so worldwide, we currently have had a total of 116 million cases, which is up from 113.5 million seven days ago. So that's about 2.5 million new cases or a 2.2% increase which is actually down significantly from just a couple of months ago and kind of continues the downward trend in in daily new cases. But um, still, you know, 2.6 million people have been killed by this disease at this point, which is up from 2.52 million last week, which is is about 80,000 new deaths or a 3.2% increase um, in total deaths in one week. Um, which is essentially flat from the increase um, the prior week. So, you know, it's not getting worse, but it's not necessarily getting better either. But hopefully as we see cases continuing to to slow, the spread of the disease continuing to slow, we'll start to see that trend into uh, into the new deaths as well and see those decline. Um, So far... uh, Worldwide, we've had about 3.6 doses administered for every 100 people in the world. Um, But kind of the caveat there is that these um, vaccines have been concentrated in just kind of a few countries. So at this point, um, 142 of the 195 countries in the world have less than 1% of their population with at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, so that's kind of going to be one of the big challenges um, in the near term is going to be, um, you know, getting these vaccines to parts of the world that are less developed or, or more poor um, because 
we could really, you know, it could be a really challenging complication if we don't vaccinate, if we don't like reach herd immunity as, as a world rather than just like as a nation. In the U.S., um, we've had a total of 29.5 million cases, which is up from 29.1 million cases seven days ago, which is just a 1.4% increase, which is actually a huge improvement in, in total cases, um, like compared to even recent weeks. So that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, but similar to the rest of the world, like a lot of people are still dying from this disease. We've hit 533,000 deaths in the U.S., which is up from 521,000 last week, which is 12,000 new deaths. Um, you know, that's not like the highest rate that we've had in the pandemic, but it's still, you know, a 2.3% increase in total deaths in one week. And that comes out to about seven or 1,700 deaths per day. And if you annualize that number, that's still 620,000 deaths per year, which would put that on an annual basis as the second leading cause of death. So like, even if our cases are going down, we're we're not seeing that trend into, into lower, like significantly lower deaths yet. Yeah. And I think I was reading somewhere that the death rate is about where it was during, uh, during the summer when we first started Mm -hmm. shutting everything down. Yep. So just to put things into perspective for you. Yeah, for sure. But again, like hopefully, like we're seeing really starkly declining rates of new cases. So hopefully that quickly kind of trends into into starkly declining death numbers as well. Um, and this is all going on as we're getting more and more vaccines. So at this point in the U.S., 15.9% of the population has received at least one dose with 8.1% fully vaccinated. And that that 8.1% is up from 6% um, at the time of our last recording, so like eight days ago or so. Um, so that's, that's a pretty big improvement as well. And the Biden administration has come out with news that they're going to have three, 300 million doses by May. And on top of that, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, just received its emergency youth authorization, and and we got information that uh, that Merck is going to help them actually manufacture those. So we get we get even more vaccines in circulation, and that vaccine just requires one dose. So there's actually like a lot of positive movement here, um, which is like the first probably like unmitigated like good news in a long time. Yeah. And, and the Biden administration had also apparently mentioned that they wanted to go ahead and inoculate teachers uh, by the end of March, which mm. I got to say, and I'm definitely not biased here, I think that <laughs> sounds like a dandy idea. <laughs> no, I think that is a huge idea. I think that's a really valuable idea. Like yeah. one of the things that Biden emphasized is the reopening of schools, partially because like he knows how critical that is for yeah. um, you know, like child care in general, just having people, having kids be able to go to school. And unlike Trump, when he was just saying we should reopen schools with like no preparation, um, the Biden administration is like trying to actually fund the safe reopening of schools and do things like vaccinate teachers, which would make it possible for kids who can't be vaccinated yet to still go to a place without potentially endangering these like essential workers. Yeah. One of the things that's actually kind of really hurt during this whole pandemic process is I've been seeing a lot of people that uh, are the parents of students of several different ages talk about how uh, teachers 
that don't want schools to reopen are just being selfish to the kids needs that kids aren't people that tends to be hit hard by this virus and i just have to say that that this whole idea that teachers somehow don't care about students or that teachers don't care enough about students to understand just how difficult this has been for students is just bullshit <laughs> i mean it's just bullshit teachers completely understand how difficult this has been for kids that is not lost on us i am a public speaking teacher i teach mm -hmm. speeches you know how hard that is to do over zoom do you know how hard <laughs> it is to try to recreate the environment of teaching uh, of, mm -hmm. of giving a speech over zoom like of course we understand that it's a problem and of course we understand that in a lot of ways it's stifling the education of students yeah. But you know what else would stifle them? If their parents died in the middle of the pandemic, if their yeah. grandparents died in the middle of the pandemic, if their teacher died in the middle of a pandemic. Much harder to get taught by a dead teacher, I hear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know what's more Rumor dangerous than, than kids getting behind on their classes? 533,000 deaths. Yeah, exactly. So I just, yeah. I just wanted to point that out. Um, I mean, everybody knows teachers get into it for the money, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes they just want to they just want a free paycheck <laughs> yes sarcasm. I, the 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 line for anybody who's listening that might not get that <laughs> the line in uh in flubber where robin williams's character is just like if we wanted to make money we wouldn't have become teachers i have never related to a line more <laughs> hmm. um but yeah uh so it does look like there is a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. So let's talk about not just the ways in which Democrats are trying to fight to uh, the the health side of the pandemic, but also the economic side. So we want to spend some time talking yeah. a little bit about the stimulus package. Yeah. So, so currently the uh, COVID relief bill is sitting in the Senate. So it's passed through the House, unsurprisingly. And the Senate is working on its version, which would then have to be voted on in the House and then would get to Biden's desk. Um, at this point, um, it's sitting at 1.9, another like really large $1.9 trillion bill, um, which like is necessary. You know, like people like there's been a lot of pushback on from like fiscal conservatives that like, oh, it's just it's just too big. And it's like all I can't as I go through it, I don't see a bunch of dollars to cut here. I see like maybe ways that we could fund it by doing things like, you know, removing some tax benefits for the ultra wealthy. But I don't <laughs> see things like, oh, maybe we just shouldn't fund, uh, you know, PPE for teachers when they reopen schools and things like that. Yeah. One of the biggest criticisms that I've been seeing is specifically the money that's being allocated for uh, number one schools and number two uh, state and local governments, which is hilarious that that's that Republicans consider that to be a criticism. I mean, I, I don't even know what the logic is there. I was I was going to try to make a joke about yeah. their logic. I can't even I can't even find it. Yeah, I totally agree. Like state and local governments have been the backbone of any type of COVID response in like so far, they've been absolutely critical. And also, come on, Republicans, like, 
the more we enable state and local governments to take charge, the less is done by the federal government. Like, isn't that what you want? Isn't that the goal for you? Yeah. And yeah, I would I'm just not like sure to, what the criticism is there. I would just like to point out uh, a specific quotation from uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. God, it feels so good to call him the Minority Leader. <laughs> um, it's my kink. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, when he was talking about the bill, he said, quote, it is a it's a partisan vote reflects a deliberate partisan process and a missed opportunity to meet Americans needs. So there's a few reasons why that is hilarious. So reason number one. So if you're looking at it just based on how many Republicans support it, as in how many elected Republicans support it, then, yeah, it's a partisan vote. Not a single Republican in the House voted for the bill. Not a single Republican. However, uh, according to a morning consult poll, this bill is currently supported by 76% of voters, including 60% of Republicans. I'll say that again. 60% of Republicans support the Democratic stimulus package, and not a single elected Republican voted for it. And they're trying to call it a partisan process. Are you fucking kidding me? And what's also, <laughs> what's also hilarious about this is that partisanship didn't seem to matter to Mitch McConnell when he was trying to jam through a massive tax cut in which 80% of the benefits over 10 year period will go to the top 1%. He didn't care about partisan partisan partisanship back then. He didn't care about the fact that not a single Democrat voted for it. And he also didn't care about the fact that according to a Quinnipiac poll from the time, from the time that the the bill was being passed, only 25% of Americans supported the tax bill. 25% of Americans supported that tax bill. And, you know, you want to talk about fiscal responsibility. They're saying, oh, no, this is going to blow up the deficit. The tax bill destroyed the fucking deficit. Like, they didn't just explode it. They set it on fire, poured gasoline mm-hmm. on it, then, like, poured nitroglycerin on it. Like, are yeah. you are you kidding me? And also... The important thing about deficit spending to understand is that deficit spending isn't always inherently a bad thing. The reason why you might need to have some deficit spending is oftentimes in case of economic emergencies. So if you want to increase the deficit spending in order to pay for a stimulus package during a pandemic, which is an emergency situation, it completely makes sense to raise the deficit. But if we're talking about raising the deficit in order to pay for massive tax cuts for the richest Americans... No, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of it like a personal finance example. Your car breaks down. You need to use your credit card to pay for it. That makes sense. That's deficit spending. What doesn't make sense? Like leaving your high-paying job and then putting it all on credit card debt. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like it is just a total like just playing like a political party line to try to to try to play that like the democrats had a few priorities in trying to pursue the stimulus bill help 
as many people as significantly as they, they can help our economy, uh, you know, recover and two, do it quickly. And neither of those things would have been achievable by trying to like run this through and get like a two thirds majority with a bunch of Republican support. It would have been whittled down to nothing. It would have been like not significantly helpful and it would have taken months and we don't have months because 11.4 million unemployed people will run out of unemployment insurance between the middle of March and the middle of April. If this bill isn't passed, if we had waited or, or if we continue to wait, like a lot of people will suffer. And so to put like bipartisanship specifically among a non-representative group of elected Republicans ahead of like the suffering of people is totally wrong. And unfortunately yeah. a very typical set of priorities for, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the GOP. It's just, it's just always been par for the course that Republicans will always overestimate how conservative their constituency mm -hmm. is. And Democrats will always overestimate how conservative their constituency is. Like yeah. that, that, that's just, that's just par for the course. Like when you go yeah. through it issue by issue, most Americans actually agree on most of the issues. You know, it's this mm -hmm. stupid propaganda that happens, you know, quite frankly, on both sides about who the other side is that never allows us to recognize, hey, you know, we support this. Let's just get it done. Let's just do it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, 75% of all of us support this package. Let's just do it. Let's just get it done. But no, yeah. that's that's not how elected Republicans work. And And again, I know that I say this a lot, but this is why it is essential to always, always, always draw a distinction between elected Republicans and Republican voters. Because a lot of Republican voters are actually people that, uh, on a lot of the economic issues, actually support the Democrats, actually more fall in line with what the Democrats believe. So speaking of Republican voters really siding with democratic policies for the most part, we should probably talk about what exactly is in this $1.9 trillion bill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to start off, um, as you might expect, uh, the stimulus checks are in this one. So yeah. not not $2,000. It's a $1,400 stimulus check uh, per person in a household, including children, which is good. Um, and you would get those checks if you earn, if you're like a single earner in the household making seven, up to $75,000 a year, or if you have a, a married couple in the household earning up to $150,000 a year. So this should cover about 90% of U.S. Health, households getting checks. Um, I still am not okay with the means testing. Like, <laughs> I'm... I mean, I, I, what annoys me about this is, number one, Biden campaigned in Georgia, specifically saying, you send these two senators, like, <laughs> you'll get those checks. Yeah. And part of me actually wonders if he didn't actually think they would win. And, like, <laughs> when they did, he was like, oh, shit, now I actually have to do something. Um, so, I don't think so, because he didn't. <laughs> I, I, 
I don't know. I, I mean, in, in his head. But 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 the thing is, like, first it was we're gonna send you two thousand dollars. Then it was we're gonna send you for uh, fourteen hundred dollars. Now it's we're gonna send most of you fourteen hundred dollars. Like, why? I mean, and and is and isn't it also based on uh, the previous year's tax filings? Yeah, yeah, that seems problematic to me. Yeah, because like, some people might have lost their job. Yeah, during the which, during during the pandemic. Also, and you also have a lot of stuff on the other side, like um, for the means testing. I'm not sure of exactly exactly like a better way. I guess at this point we have the 2020 tax. Um, returns that we could evaluate rather than 2019 but uh like you have the other way like for me i according to 2019 taxes uh and this means testing should would get this bill but um i don't think i don't i don't know if i would now or like maybe i might get a reduced amount so like if you are going to do means testing using old data doesn't make any sense like it's all it's going to do is have it misaligned from the intended population um you make like, so much more than me well <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> i don't know what to say to that <laughs> i picked money i worked for a fucking I bank, know, you were for a bank. <laughs> i know what was i thinking <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough you picked you picked teaching you picked yeah. rhetoric i picked i picked math um uh but but back to like the topic at hand i i I feel like i i do get i do become worried about means testing because i want the checks to go to the people that need them um if it meant something like if we had a really good way to like determine who needed them and who didn't and that meant that we could take that same money and provide more benefits to the people that really needed it. I would be in favor of that. But I think given like our data limitations and given the, the fact that like that's not how we would treat it, we would just treat it as like a windfall not to have to pay out $1,400 to the, to the other people. Um, then I like, then I don't really see why it makes a difference like i'd rather i'd rather be over inclusive of yeah. people that don't necessarily quote unquote need it rather than miss people who do yeah. at this point see part of it for me is also a principle i mean on principle like i support a ubi mm-hmm. and the idea behind this is basically a very one-time ubi and the yeah. u and ubi stands for universal which means that if you know the way i see it if you are paying into the system you should be getting something back. And when you really mm-hmm. think about it, um, the richest Americans who are who are paying taxes uh, and whose tax money is going to be going towards funding these packages are going to be contributing a lot more than they're going to be getting out of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure. why not just even the playing field and just yeah. give everybody the same amount of money? I mean, rich people are still paying a lot more than that than, you know, than... Uh, lower socioeconomic status people so just give it to them all yeah i definitely get that i guess i approach it from a slightly different perspective where i want a really comprehensive really effective safety net and so like that's how i want the ubi to work so as as long as it can reach every single person that needs it 
I'm good if it doesn't reach the people that don't need it. Now, how you draw those lines, I think really yeah. does matter. Yeah. But I care less if I like I get seventeen hundred dollars. I would rat like I think I think Bree and I like I think we've discussed a couple times and we might end up doing this, like just donating that to something. Cause like, honestly, I, I feel guilty getting that money when there are people that need it more than me. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, either way, I, I wish I knew the feeling, <laughs> <laughs> but like either way, like, um, this is probably not like everything you would hope. It's not the perfect policy for sure, but it's better than 600 bucks. And it is, um, you know, it's good to see that we're getting another round of, of checks out to people. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, they're also going to be passing enhanced unemployment benefits of $400 yep. a week, which, yes, that's good. I would like to point out that the original one under the original uh, Trump uh, stimulus package was $600 a week. Yeah. So just saying mm -hmm. that right there is more conservative. Like the Democrat version of it is more conservative than Trump's version of it. So, yeah. you know take that as you will yeah um but it's great that the, that unemployment benefit is extended now i think through august yeah. so rather than it like cutting off in in mid-march to mid-april those unemployment benefits are extended throughout the summer and so hopefully by that point we've got a much better handle on this thing yeah yeah uh also it expands a uh, child tax credit for households up to um three thousand six hundred dollars per child over a year Mm -hmm. uh, which, which I think, I think that's great. Um, it includes $20 billion to speed up COVID vaccinations, which, you know, if, I mean, if you want, if the goal is for, uh, every adult in the United States to be vaccinated, uh, by, wasn't it May? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you need that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, like, that is investing this money in a long-term solution, right? Yeah. Like it's not just putting a Band-Aid on the wound like some of the more stopgap economic measures. That is getting to the root cause of this. And so like every dollar we put towards that is going to pay dividends down the road. So I'm like I'm in favor of literally as much money as it takes to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Yeah, yeah, uh, I completely agree. Um, also, it, it, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it includes uh, $350 billion for uh, state, local, and uh, tribal government aid. Mm -hmm. And it also includes um, $170 billion for uh, K through 12 schools and higher education institutions, yeah. uh, specifically for the reopening, which I think it's funny how Republicans yeah. are talking about, are criticizing that part of it when they're the ones who have been saying reopen schools all along. So I, mm -hmm. I mean, I really don't get all their criticism. I think they're just trying to like the thing is like this bill is very very close to the bills that they passed. Like I don't know yeah. why they're so and upset. And it's so it's so popular. You can't even say that they're trying yeah. to represent their constituency. It's I mean it's right back to the Obama handbook. The yeah, Obama handbook exactly. was we don't care what he says, even if he says exactly what we wanted him to say, even yeah. if he proposes a health care bill. That was originally written by the Heritage Foundation that was supported <laughs> by Newt Gingrich, enacted in Massachusetts by Mitt Romney. Mm -hmm. He supports our bill. None of us are going to vote for it because <laughs> we don't care. He's a Democrat. Yep. Anything he's for, we're going to be against. Yeah, that's what they're doing under Biden. Yeah, for sure. That's true. And 
And the only saving grace here, which is barely one and may only be the case until 2022, is that we have control, like we have trifecta control, barely. Yeah. Like that is what, and we, and we happen to be in the process of budget reconciliation. So yeah. that is what is the saving grace here. Um, two other things I wanted to mention. One was that the bill includes about $19.1 billion to help low-income households cover rent um, and and utility bills, which I think is really critical. Like, I think that's the right solution for that rather than, like, you know, forcing um, – like rent holds and rent pauses and things like that, because ultimately that's just passing the buck of economic strife onto landlords. Um, It also includes $10 billion to help homeowners pay their mortgages, uh, utilities and property taxes, um, which I think, I think makes a lot of sense. I think it's a similar economic argument, although like the ability to accept fewer loan payments on your mortgages well, I don't know how that would, how, what those knock-on effects would be, but I imagine, like banks, large banks could absorb that easier than like individual landlords could absorb not getting rent. But I mean, I'm I'm mostly focused on being happy that low-income households and homeowners are getting some assistance there, and then um, it provides another five billion dollars to help states and localities assist um, people that are experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Um, which is which is great. Yeah. Um, one final point that I th- that I want to make is that the House version of this bill includes uh, raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. And so the Senate parliamentarian uh, basically said that that could not be included as a part of budget reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And the Biden administration just kind of accepted that. One of the things that's important to note about the Senate parliamentarian is that they're an unelected bureaucrat, pretty much. Yeah, and they're an advisor, right? Yeah, they're they're an advisor. And what has sometimes happened in the past when the party in power has uh, gotten an opinion, a ruling from the Senate parliamentarian that they didn't like, they just fired him or they had the vice president <laughs> overrule them. Uh, in fact, the Bush tax cuts, the parliamentarian ruled that they could not be passed with budget reconciliation. So the majority leader, the the, the, the Republican majority leader at the time was just like, okay, well, um, thank you for your opinion. Fuck you very much. You're fired. <laughs> and they passed it anyway. Mm. So the Democrats can do that if they want to. Yeah. And actually that's what Bernie Sanders right now is encouraging them to do. So right now he's actually um, planning on forcing a vote specifically on the amendment for the $15 an hour minimum wage, mm. which is going to put Democrats who have been on the fence in an awkward position because they're Mm -hmm. going to be forced to take a public position. And if they vote against it, that ain't going to look good for them. Mm -hmm. So good on Bernie for that. Uh, He's been doing a great job as the um, budget chair. There's one thing that he did where he actually had a uh, a hearing for the budget committee. The theme of the hearing was should taxpayers subsidize poverty wages at large profitable corporations. And he invited a bunch of CEOs, a bunch of experts. He invited the, um, the the president of the Economic Policy Institute, which is a source that I very frequently cite uh, with regard mm-hmm. to the minimum wage. And what's interesting about this hearing is that a few days after it, Walmart announced that it was going to be raising the wages for 
425,000 workers mm-hmm. after, after this happened. And not only that, the CEO of Costco, who's like one of the only CEOs that actually went, announced that he would be making the, the minimum wage for Costco workers $15 an hour. Wow. Bernie did that. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like it's, it's, that's a cool approach. Like it's, it doesn't have to be like top down, uh, you know, make it through the political process stuff. If, you know, if we're willing, if we're able to convince people, especially the people in power at these corporations that it's the right thing to do. And also one of the things that I was talking to my dad about, which actually is sort of an interesting angle to look at this is the fact that the more of these corporations that raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, mm-hmm. the more you have large donors to corrupt politicians who are going to be in favor of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour so that they can like, so that they can remain competitive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what Amazon's doing now. Like they yeah. have a $15 minimum wage and now they're in favor of a $15 minimum wage so that, yeah. you know, their cost basis is the same as other places. Which obviously I would say that the system is corrupt. You know, the, the fact that they are giving money to politicians and telling them what position sure. to have. Obviously yeah. that's corrupt. But at the same time, I mean, as a strategy, it's effective and it might actually work. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, I care less about that and more about people yeah. being able to get food on their table. So now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, we do Tips for Good every week because um, I stabbed my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats. Mm. I don't remember the exact words for the rest of this song, um, but I do know that it's why we do Tips for Good. That is absolutely true. It is specifically because of that gritty, spiteful <laughs> car, like key, car keying level revenge. Yeah. yeah, I'm not even completely confident that I got the first line. Correct. I think I think you actually did. I was really? I was very impressed. Yeah, oh, I think awesome. so. So oh, and yeah. also making the world a better place. Oh yes, that's a thing. That okay. is definitely a thing. Yep, that is a good call. We we should really put that on the outline. <laughs> we should we should because yeah, every single week it it feels like we just we just forget like until the last yeah. minute. You know, it's almost like it's, it's almost like it's formulaic. That's awkward. (laughs) (laughs) So what is our tip for good this week, Michael? So our tip for good this week, which comes with a lot of caveats, but generally speaking is to vote with your dollars. Um, So the idea here is kind of a basic economic one. And that's basically that when consumers spend money places, they are using dollar votes to tell the market, tell businesses and um, and the economy what they value, right? Like if if someone puts out shampoo and everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is the first time we've ever seen shampoo and everybody buys it, all of a sudden people are going to notice and shampoo is going to be supplied at more places. So the idea, so the the idea is that consumers in mass have can have a really important and huge impact on what's provided in the market, but. It recently, with like emphasis on corporate social responsibility and things like that, um, there is uh, a renewed push for consumers, and, and this is what we're suggesting, is, is for consumers to be thoughtful about not just what's on the shelf in front of you, but also the places where you're putting your money. Because, you know, when you spend 
money at certain stores, um, you are tacitly endorsing that whatever the practices they do, positive or negative, um, are, you know, uh, endorsed tacitly by your by your dollars. You, if they're doing bad things and you and you still purchase things there, then you're kind of accepting that that's okay and that's kind of worth it. Now the huge caveat here is that some of the is that is that means are critically important in making these evaluations. So like some of the most um, some of the corporations that we we would like to vote against the most, the WalMarts and and Amazons of the world are the ones that provide us things at the lowest possible cost. And so like, you know, it's not always possible to vote for the perfect candidate with your dollars, right? Like yeah. we've all voted for Biden, even though a lot of us probably would have wanted other people as options to vote for. So your your choices are definitely constrained, but where possible, voting with your dollars really can make a difference. Yeah, you know, and and it's also important to note that some people have more economic means in order to actually do that. Um, you know, it's not just about uh, general means, it's about individual means. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, we, we just finished a segment in which I criticized Walmart. I shop mm -hmm. at Walmart because of the prices. I, I'm on yeah. an adjunct salary. I, that's sure. what I can afford to do. So it is important to note that caveat, but when it's when possible, and if you're somebody who does have the privilege in order to, uh, you know, of having disposable income, it is definitely something you should consider. Yeah, absolutely. And that's tips for good. So if you listen to this podcast, you might not be very aware of an event that happened last week called CPAC or the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is hosted by the American Conservative Union. And you might not be aware of this because you're probably not invited. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not aware of it, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, it's probably a good thing. Yeah, it is a ga an annual gathering of, um, it's kind of like a Comic-Con for conservatives. They get yeah. together, there are booths, there are like job like things, networking events, but the big things are like speakers, panel discussions, um, and like breakout groups, which are led and hosted by like leaders in the conservative area. Um, and like, it's, it's really interesting. Like this has kind of changed a lot over the past few years. Like I, I've known about CPAC for a really long time because I've known a lot of people that went back from my um, like conservative philosophical days um, and like it historically has been this kind of like conservative thought leader type movement like yes it's definitely conservative but like a lot of young people you know, getting together with their friends, having fun. They're like like-minded folks kind of just like joining together and, and listening to people they respect. But over the past few years, it has taken a much more like right-wing extreme perspective. Like this, the most right-wing perspective in the party has now become kind of the core and has totally taken over CPAC. 
Um, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about that today and kind of what that might mean for uh, the GOP in coming years. One of the things that I would like to point out is that I have a slightly different perspective uh, on CPAC. Um, I think they were always crazy. <laughs> um, I think they were always this far right. And uh, I also think that the, the only measurable difference that I would say between a lot of, you know, the like in the past conservatives and, you know, current mainstream conservatives is number one. Uh, mainstream conservatives nowadays are, you know, they tweet more. <laughs> um, and uh, number two, they worship Trump more. Yeah, I mean, I would say I that mean, last when you one actually, is When you actually huge, look, at, yeah. look at it policy by policy, I mean, Mitch McConnell, actually, you know, not even Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney and Donald Trump are very similar. Hmm. When you're actually looking at it in terms of especially economic policy and and honestly a lot of social policy, mm-hmm. I mean stances on abortion, um, and such like there are some issues in which you could argue that Mitt Romney is a little bit more moderate on. He does uh, support a uh, increase in the minimum wage. I mean, only to ten dollars after mm-hmm. five years, but at least he supports a minimum wage uh, increase. <laughs> ten dollars in after wage. five years—that's going to yeah. be so far behind inflation by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That—that—that's uh, that, that's what Mitt Romney believes. But 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 the the, the point is that um, the I don't think that a lot of the policies or thought process of conservatives have changed, but a lot of their methods have definitely changed. Mm-hmm. I while watching. Uh, I, I did not watch the whole thing uh, because I have some self-respect. Um, but while watching um, like clips from it, uh, various different speakers from it, um, even though like in my head I knew that like seventy percent of what they said was just flat out wrong, I was still shitting myself. Like I was mm-hmm. still terrified. I was looking around like, oh my god, someone's just gonna come around the corner and, and start start killing me, just start stabbing me. You know, they're going to be, they're going to have pink hair and they're going to be, um, you know, they're going to be wearing a Planned Parenthood shirt. <laughs> that right there, I think, emphasizes my biggest criticism of, um, of CPAC, which is its overall theme, which is not necessarily to focus directly on economic issues, but instead to focus on culture war stuff. But that's like not always been the case, though. Like, yeah. like CPAC has not always been the as policy free as it has as it was this year, which is which is like to me a big shift. Like the fact, like Trump is the emphasis on Trump, the Trump worship is a is like a big change for sure. Probably, but also a really obvious one. But like, yeah. what's interesting to me is like how much of this stuff, how much of their time is not even dedicated to trying to do anything. Yeah. All they are is anti-Democrats, anti-cancel culture, pro-Trump. That is that is the whole thing. And like what's interesting, and, and like I think that you know has been a relatively slow change. Like it's not like it's all happening this year. But the fact that like that was the theme of the RNC, that's the theme of CPAC, and they didn't even bother to put together a party platform in the 2020 election. Yeah. Like it all, it all comes together on these themes that like, they don't know 
what solution, what policy solutions, what they really think are the most important things that actually unite them. But what unites them is being against Democrats, being against cancel culture. And I think I think the thing is like we might be biased because we focus on policy all the time, but they're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, so here's where I still kind of um, disagree. Like I, I half agree with you. Uh, so where I would kind of draw the distinction is I actually don't necessarily think that when we're talking about a lot of the Republican leaders, mm -hmm. I think a lot of them in their minds are very policy oriented, policy focused. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because because let's let's think about what's actually been accomplished in the culture war versus on economics within the last four years while Donald Trump was president. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest legislative accomplishment of the Trump administration was not making abortion illegal because that didn't happen. Yeah. It wasn't building a wall because that didn't happen. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't any major immigration piece of legislation because that never happened. It was a major tax giveaway to the top earners in the country. Mm -hmm. a, a bill that, as we talked about earlier at the time, was supported by 25% of Americans. Republicans, their, their voters, didn't even support it at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I'm, the argument that, I'm, uh, that I would make is that rhetorically, they focus more on the, the culture war. Rhetorically, CPAC, the RNC, focuses on the culture war. But the actual leaders, in the back of their minds, they know that that's just a distraction. Like, mm -hmm. I, I was watching the clip where Donald Trump was talking about trans people in sports. Mm -hmm. And, like, the way he was talking about it, you could tell he didn't care. Sure. Like, he was so, you know, when, when Trump talks about <laughs> Talk things about that he really cares about. Talk about sports here. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It felt like, you know, the gears were turning and someone had said, okay, this is what you should say. This is going to drive the crowd wild. He didn't mm -hmm. actually care. Of course he doesn't care about that stuff. Sure. I, and I definitely get that. Like, I think that I think that's totally true. I think more and more, though, they're like making this beast that's getting away from them. Like, I think more and more people yeah, that are getting the public that. eye that are that are that are spending time on that stage are the people that actually are buying into these into the culture war stuff. I mean, they did have they did have Matt Gates, and he yep. definitely buys into that. He, stuff. He, um, yeah, yeah. They had Ted Cruz and. Holy shit, he buys into that stuff. Yeah. Um, they had Don Jr. And yeah, he definitely buys into that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the funny things about the whole culture war approach is that it ended up being incredibly self-defeating in so many ways. So the theme, the theme of the entire conference mm -hmm. was America uncanceled. So naturally, one yeah, of the first things is, that happened prior to the actual uh, conference was they had to cancel one of their speakers because he was a raging anti-Semite. Like, yeah, it was, it was this, uh, this rapper named uh, young Pharaoh mm -hmm. um, who said that uh, Judaism is a complete lie, that Jewish people are thieving, that um, Jewish, that all the censorship and pedophilia on uh, social media is done by Israeli Jews. Mm. He, at one point he basically said that, Jewish people don't even really exist, that it's just a, like, it's just a made-up religion, <laughs> and the people don't actually exist. They're just, Yeah, it's just know, like the oldest surviving religion, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he said that um, 
uh, he doesn't believe in the validity of uh, of Judaism, and he also challenged a rabbi to debate with him for uh, fifty thousand dollars. And yeah, so this guy got canceled from CPAC, and I think yeah. that hilariously demonstrates just how much they don't know what their own platform is regarding the culture war. Yeah, because when it comes to the culture war. To be clear, I think that there are legitimate things that we can say about, you know, cancel culture. We can have legitimate and interesting critiques on cancel culture, instances in which it might have gone too far. Mm -hmm. But the issue is we don't take the time to define what the hell it is. Yeah, for sure. So if you just blanketly say cancel culture is bad and you don't actually define what you mean by that, you don't define the actual problems that you have, then you're not actually making a point. You're not actually making an argument. I mean, and, and this, this, I brought this point up when I've talked about how, uh, you know, none of these conservatives said anything when it was Colin Kaepernick's head on the chopping block. Yeah, of course. When, yeah. when, when he got fired for, for kneeling during the national anthem to protest black people being shot by police, they universally cheered. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is this is why Democrats have gotta get better about free speech messaging. Yeah, for sure. Like the fact I that I totally agree. The fact that it feels like Democrats have actually almost seeded the idea that Republicans are the party of free speech is ridiculous. Yeah, it's infuriating. They number one, they don't have a principled stance when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, mind you, I disagree with a lot of people on the left when it comes to uh, censorship on social media, but Republicans sure as hell don't have a consistent view on this. Yeah. And number two, which which party is the one that's been passing a bunch of anti-protest laws across the nation? Mm-hmm. Uh, which party sent secret police to round up peaceful protesters? Which party was that? Was that was that the Democrats? Was that the Democrats, Mike? Uh, you mean the anti-free speech Democrats? Yeah, the anti-free speech Democrats. Was that them? No. No, they, no, didn't. No, they it can't was, do anything. <laughs> no, it was the, uh, it was the, oh yeah, it was the, it was the free speech warrior Republicans that did that. Interesting. Yeah. So, so Democrats have got to get better on messaging when it comes to free speech. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, just the idea that the Republicans are the party of the Constitution just blows my mind. Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's like, it's a terrible thing to concede. Like, their literal agenda theme for CPAC this year was the Bill of Rights. Like, they, like each, each, their agenda is, like, broken out into sections, and, like, each one is a different amendment. And on top of all this, actually, CPAC has a really long history of canceling people. Like, they'll extend invitations to speakers and then retract them later on when, like, it turns out that they're too fucking nuts. <laughs> like Milo Yiannopoulos. Like they, they invited him out and then he was like, oh, actually, turns out, you know, uh, there's like a video of you like supporting pedophilia or something. So no thanks. <laughs> like they like it, the thing is their whole theme of of unfettered uh, like free speech and just like unfettered freedom is obvious hypocrisy if you yeah. look at it closely at all. But they're counting on the fact that what they need is not internal consistency. What they need is fear of Democrats. Yeah. What they need is like fear of socialism. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was another uh, huge theme. I was watching this one highlight reel that showed all of the times in which um, the word socialist or communist was yeah. um, rep- was presented. 
and got that right there. Like there's not a single person in higher office right now who is a communist, not yeah. a single damn person. There's not a single person in higher office that's an actual socialist. Mm-hmm. I know you might be like, well, but but Bernie Sanders says he's a democratic socialist. If you actually look at all of his policies, it's standard Scandinavian social democracy. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in his head, he might support more socialist policies. But if all the policies that he supports were enacted, that would not be a socialist utopia. That would be social democracy. Yeah. So even that, even the socialist is not a socialist. Yeah. And they yeah. want you to think that Biden is a communist or a socialist. I know. That was, that was the other thing. Their only mention of Biden, which is a very strange thing for a political conference happening right after a new party takes office was to like, they only mentioned him a couple times and it was exclusively to try to align him with their like fear mongering version of the far left. Yeah. And like, but they didn't mention him much at all. And I assume that's because that's a hard message to sell. It didn't work. It it just didn't land as part of the 2020 presidential election. Like it was just clearly not based in anything reasonable, especially when you contrast him to Bernie and he's not even the person they claim he is. Yeah. So, and one of the things that I, that I also want to point out is there's never any distinction between elected Democrats and just, mm. you know, Democrat voters or, or, sure. or liberals or progressives or, or whatever. Um, so it's not just that they're saying, hey, there are these people in power and they're doing bad things with their power mm. and they're manipulating their supporters to support to, to support bad things. But their supporters are, you know, might be decent people. It's these people and the people that support them are evil communist yeah. socialists that want to come for your guns that want to overrun the streets with dangerous illegal immigrants their words not mine yeah and that right there just so shows a distinct lack of principles mm-hmm. i'm not saying that there aren't sometimes democrats that or or, or you know democrats or, or leftists that go a little bit too far in talking about um you know in talking about conservative voters yeah for sure but I mean, from the far left of the Democratic Party, you know, the, the Bernie Sanderses to the center left of the Democratic Party, the Joe Bidens, they frequently say that it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, we're here to represent you. We're mm-hmm. here to help you. We're here to make sure that your best interests are, uh, are kept in mind. But the, but the entire theme of CPAC is just, it's not, hey, Democratic voters, you've been misled. You know, our policies are, are we support them because we think they're going to help, we think they're going to help everybody. Mm-hmm. The theme was own the libs. Not yeah, even, and, not even here, yeah. here are some policy, not, our, not even necessarily like, here's our group of policies. You know, here's uh, here's a group of policies that liberals are going to hate. Just own the libs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah that that definitely united. I think the whole the whole conference. The other thing that like was really important. And I was curious about is I think that this conference answered the question fairly conclusively in my mind that the GOP is 
absolutely 100% still like the party of Trump. Yeah. Like I think there's been like some hee-hawing about whether the GOP is divided and I think the answer is essentially some people like it's it's the same answer we've had from the very beginning. There are people that like are cultishly devoted to Trump. There are, are other conservatives that are not, but like support his policies, and ultimately they'll all support Trump because he's the one that, like, he's like the alpha Republican. And yeah. one of the reasons we we know this is because they conduct straw polls at each uh, CPAC, and so you know. This is not a perfectly randomized sample. This is not like the perfect polling, but it is an interesting indication of of where like this specifically dedicated group of Republicans is leaning. And uh, what they found was that 55% of attendees favored uh, Trump, like electing Trump as the primary nominee uh, for the presidential election of 2024, which like, 55% that's that's like barely a majority that's like not that's not that crazy it's a little lower than I was expecting um, but 95% of attendees 95% said that they wanted the party to stick to Trump's policies and agenda so it's a similar thing like yeah. a lot of conservatives support Trump not everyone but almost I mean, everyone says I mean, that he's taking the party second, in the right direction the person who got second place in that poll was Ron DeSantis yeah and and that's because it was in Florida <laughs> and he's <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, probably. But also, like, he's Trump. I yeah. mean, yeah, he's yeah. a Trump Republican. Um, and 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 at one point, uh, Don Jr. actually made the point that this isn't CPAC; it's TPAC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, they had a gold right statue there, of Trump. Yeah, that <laughs> right there should just demonstrate how um, the the Republican Party is trying to make the Republican voters basically a cult of personality. Yeah. Like the idea is we're not going to, you know, we're not going to unify behind an ideology of conservatism. We're going to unify behind an ideology of kissing Trump's ass. Yeah. And that right there should, when he said that, that should have been the greatest insult to everybody in that room. Absolutely. I mean, if I ever went to a progressive pack, and it was all about saying how great Bernie was, mm-hmm. like how wonderful of a person he was, and not about actually talking about policy. I'd I'd be sick. Yeah, I would hate that. And and if Bernie just embraced it, I would I would be pissed at him. The thing that I like about Bernie, the reason why I yeah. like him so much, is because that's all he focuses on. Like I don't like him mm. for his personality. Like you, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's it's. The whole old man vibe with the mittens was kind of cute, but you know, I, <laughs> that's been me I, on the lift all week. <laughs> I, I like him. Uh, I like him because of his policies. I support him because of his policies. I don't give a damn what his personality is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And it's really interesting, like how dedicated they are to the Trump party line. It's not. It's not surprising because we've been seeing this again and again and again. But it's like. To me, it just, I don't know. It felt like the final nail in the coffin for me. Just like yeah. this is, Trump's not even in office anymore. We ha- There was a huge opportunity for the GOP to like reject him 
And rather than that, they're like, like going right back into the Trump line. And like, and they even they even like disinvited Romney and Liz Cheney and other like Republic and the other Republicans that voted to impeach him because it was specifically about, you know, kowtowing to Trump, which means like, so we should expect nothing less than that in 2022 and 2024. Like Trump has nothing but time to get to gain as much like plenty of ground um, to like to quiet down the messaging of the like a very tumultuous time in his presidency right before the election and afterwards. Um, and I think he will very effectively do that. And like we should expect to see Trump on the ballot in 2024. And now it's time for a segment we really like, but we don't get to do that often, a D-Bag Award. Yes. And as all of, all of you know, of course, D-Bag stands for Dershowitz Bag, for back when Alan Dershowitz created an argument so self-defeating that we had to name an award after him. Yeah, yeah. So Nathan, but... who is the honorary recipient, recipient uh, this week? Well, our honorary recipient of the D-Bag Award is uh, Republican South Dakota Senator John Thune. Wow. John Thune, come on down. That is someone I have literally never heard of. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard of him a few times, but uh, yeah, this is is the first time that I've actually said his name out loud. Mm. Um, So John Thune had an interesting argument to make against the $15 an hour minimum wage. So he he tweeted, quote, I started working by bussing tables at the Star Family Restaurant for $1 an hour and slowly moved up to cook. The big leagues for a kid like me to earn $6 an hour. Businesses in small towns survive on narrow margins. Mandating $15 an hour would put many of them out of business. So, Michael, why is that a hilariously self-defeating argument? Because economics. <laughs> because John Thune is old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not that old, but um, yeah. So, adjusted for inflation, um, using June 1978, which I guess is the right timing, as a baseline, um, that $6 an hour would be worth $24 an hour today. So it's almost like, um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like we I should have minimum wage. Keep up with and it was enough for me back then. Oh, that was enough for you back then. Interesting, wonderful. So you should be making enough for you. Okay, I agree. So you're arguing for a twenty-four dollar an hour minimum wage. I mean, <laughs> that wasn't what I was asking for. You know, yeah. I wasn't saying that, but if that's what you want to talk about, I'm willing to, I'm willing to talk about that number. <laughs> so yeah. Like, I think that's, yeah. it's like, it's so it, yeah, it is absolutely self-defeating. It's awesome. Yeah. Like the, the exact, the exact reason why that worked for you back then is the exact reason why we need to raise the minimum wage today. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's not even much more to say about this. It's just such a dumb argument. And I, I, you got to ask, is he actually that dumb or does he just think his supporters are? Because if I were one of his supporters, I'd be insulted. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so a deep and hearty congratulations to our honorary recipient of the D-Bag Award, 
Senator John Thune, congratulations. So, Michael, um, so as as you have probably figured out from the uh, from the information that we've discussed in this podcast so far, I haven't really been following the news this week. Yeah, sure, yeah. you never do. Um, I never do. Yeah. Uh, however, I will say that I, it was nice to wake up this morning, just remembering that Joe Biden was the president, mm, because I was nice. remembering back, you know, when when Trump was president, and I always had to worry about him bombing other countries. <laughs> You know, it, mm -hmm. it's it's really nice that you don't have to worry about that with Biden, isn't it? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, this I, is going to be awkward. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm I'm finding those you know mm -hmm sounds a little bit uh, disconcerting. Uh, yeah. Michael, do 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 you have something you need to tell me? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Biden um, bombed Syria, <laughs> and no, Fuck. we don't. We're not at war with Syria. Um. <laughs> which according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is a UK-based organization, uh, it killed 22 people. Yeah, but according to the Pentagon, it killed one person and wounded two more. So you get yeah. a uh, Probably the UK on this one. <laughs> the watchdog organization? <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, probably the watchdog organization, not the people that uh, actually carried it out and claimed that... Oh, the point of this is not to escalate conflicts. Of course, we're not trying to escalate conflicts. We're just trying to warn people. Yeah. So so, so let's do the background real fast. So last week, um, the, Obama, uh, the Biden administration, uh, man, when, you, when their policies are so close, it's so hard to remember which is which. The Biden administration. Oh, I have said oh, Biden so many times. <laughs> um, authorized an airstrike on uh, the Syrian side of the Iraqi border um, on uh, in response to a deadly um, a deadly rocket barrage that, uh, launched against a US-led coalition base in northern Iraq that killed a civilian contractor and wounded a US service member and other coalition troops. Um, it is believed that that rocket attack was, which occurred a couple of weeks ago, was perpetrated by an Iranian-backed uh, Iraqi uh, militias, um, which we talked about a little bit on this show before. Like these are proxy forces that are that are um, you know coordinated by the Iranian government. However, um, Iran has denied that they um, were involved, and you know it is it is unclear whether they were directly or indirectly involved in this in this rocket attack. Um, but that being said. We lost this airstrike against this militia group on the Syria, Syrian side of the Iraqi border. Uh, we were specifically going after a logistics hub uh, for this militia group. Um, and this is all against the backdrop of trying to negotiate the U.S.'s and Ira uh, Iran's return to the 2015 Iran deal. So, like, there's all kinds of diplo diplomatic and military um like background to this uh, going on right as like Biden literally drops a bomb in the middle of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there was also another report that came out. I think it was actually just today mm. that there was going to be a second bombing, uh, but that Biden called it off at the last minute because he noticed uh, because someone had told him apparently that there were women and children there, which well, that's good. I mean, it's a, definitely a priority. 
yeah, that's a priority, but you still killed 22 people. Mm-hmm. Like you still killed 22 people. And look, obviously I'm not going to excuse the fact that a civilian contractor was killed. Sure. Obviously that was yeah. wrong. That was terrible. But the biggest reason why military personnel, civilian personnel in Iraq are in danger is because we're over there. Like we're, we're funding endless war with Iraq and Afghanistan right now. And that's putting our people at risk and strikes like this, which, you know, (laughs) this is certainly not proportional. I mean, you killed 22 people. That is not a proportional strike. Mm -hmm. So strikes like this, you know, there's this idea among war hawks that if you do this, that's going to disincentivize more violence in the future. But that's never what happens. Mm. It's an unstable region, which means violence is going to beget violence. So do you honestly think that there isn't going to be a response? Do you honestly think that this makes our soldiers and civilians in Iraq safer? Are you kidding me? No, this is just going to piss people off, piss off militia groups, and and it's probably going to lead to another attack, hmm. which again, you're probably going to respond by bombing a bunch of other people, and it's just going to com- continue to escalate tensions in the Middle East so that you can continue to justify the fact that we're at war and we're going to be at war for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And I'm so goddamn tired of you know, this of endless war. I'm so goddamn tired of Americans just pretend America, just pretending that like we are above it all, that no matter what we are the good guys, you know, if, Mm. if, 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 I mean, think about it this way. If another country bombed us, if another country bombed, uh, one of our places and killed 22 people, we'd be up in arms. We'd want to declare war on them. Ah, but but the reason the reason why it's okay when we do it is because might makes right because we have the military capacity to continue to back it up. We have the military capacity to continue war. So, you know, if if somebody were to attack our country, we have the means to retaliate. Which again, to be clear, if someone were to attack our country, we can and should retaliate. However, that idea is not only specific to us. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not, so I don't I don't pretend to be a total like an expert on the region or the situation over there. So like to me like to me it is one question whether it's the right strategic move. Right? Like it's one question if we think it will actually uh I don't know how it would stabilize the region or how it would de-radicalize already radical militia groups. Like, I don't really understand how that, that logic doesn't make sense to me, to your point, but I don't, but I definitely don't know. And I don't think I have enough information to know for sure whether it's the right strategic move or not. But I think, I think the push of a number of progressive Democrats is the right one. They have come all progressive Democrats. Tim Kaine came out against this. No, no, this. definitely not. Like Tim Kaine no, is and that's sure what I'm saying. not a that's progressive what I'm saying. Democrat. This is 
No, no. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah, you're right. Like Tim Kaine said, quote, offensive military action without congressional approval is not constitutional absent extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. So basically the, the push of a number of Democrats is, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't have the, you know, the, the authority to act unilaterally, especially when we're not already at war. And this is not an emergency situation. Yeah. Like it is, it is, it was, it was the exact same set of criticisms levied against Donald Trump in the Soleimani killing. Yeah. Like maybe that was the right strategic move. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it, it turned out okay in the end, although it was totally unclear at the time whether it would. But the fact that they are acting unilaterally without a grant from Congress without like any type of oversight in a non-extraordinary, non-emergency, non-defense situation. Like this, this, the justification was specifically about a deterrent effect. Deterrents are not defense. Yeah. You know, so like yeah. to me, like to me that, that goes back to your point about endless war. Like we've gotten so, we've gotten so used to the idea that we are constantly uh, taking some kind of military action in the Middle East. That like the focus, is, the, the question we're always asking is this, is this the right action or not? Versus like, can this person even, can the president even act in this way? And I think we should really examine that question. Like we should really examine whether we want the president to be this unilateral military uh, yeah. acting like authority. The fact that the president has the nuclear codes is just ridiculous. The fact that one person has that much power is just ridiculous. I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. Like, the president should not be able to launch nuclear nuclear missiles. President should not have unilateral authority to just launch any strikes that are offensive in nature. I mean, look, if we are talking about defensive in nature. And when I say defensive, I mean there is an imminent threat to American lives, an imminent threat that is going to happen. That's fine. It makes total sense. Go ahead. Mm. Yeah, of course. We need someone to be able to yeah. to pull that trigger. Yeah. Sim- exactly. Like, you know, metaphorically speaking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm no idiot. I know that uh, sometimes that happens and sometimes you do need somebody to make a very quick decision that might result in, you know, in some damage uh, that might result in death um, for the sake of defense. I understand that, but that was not this case. It was not the case with Soleimani. It was not the case with the Syria missile strike. And look, I yeah. I was actually very pleasantly surprised that even, you know, Democrats like Tim Kaine we're very quick to condemn uh, Joe Biden for this because like Joe Biden's bombs don't smell like roses. All right. It's the same damn bombs that Trump used. So if we're going to have criticized Donald Trump for using his authority as the president to escalate wars in the Middle East, we got to criticize Joe Biden for it too. And we can't just let him get away with it because he has a D next to his name. Yeah. I voted for, I voted for Joe Biden because he was better than Donald Trump. 
That doesn't mean he gets a free pass. That doesn't mean I have to support everything he does. And that doesn't mean that I have to stay silent on everything he does. And with that, um, we will finish off our episode uh, with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight this week is probably going to make Jess cringe when she listens to this. Mm. Um, And right now she's cringing because she's not sure what I'm about to say as she (laughs) is listening to the podcast. Um, So I've, I've had a very stressful week in a lot of ways. But one of the things that just like just today brought me so much joy was uh, I watched this fail video mm-hmm. online. There was a fart compilation. Good Lord. It are was you, a are fart you kidding me? It was a fart compilation. And one of them involved somebody farting the Darth Vader theme song. And it was so funny. I laughed so hard. I was like, Oh my God. I, I, I have never experienced just such joy and just, just that, you know what? It's, it's the little, sometimes it's the little things in life that you just got to sit back and enjoy. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's a decent paycheck. Sometimes it's a day off. Sometimes it's a fart compilation. Unacceptable. I refuse to <laughs> laugh at that. Good Lord. <laughs> See, you just you start. You start you just with. Laughed. You start with. I. I just smile. <laughs> you start with fart compilations on YouTube, and then it's QAnon, and then you know, it's, it's a slippery slope. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's so. What was your highlight, Michael? <laughs> I think I can guess what your highlight is, but go ahead. I, I mean, I've been in Vermont this week skiing, and yeah. um, that has been awesome. Like, it, it was, it's been really great to get um, away from the area, to get like away from work, and be able to focus on this hobby, which I don't get to do that often, but I love passionately. Um, yeah, so I've been up in Vermont after complying with their, you know, travel guidelines and all that stuff, and skiing, and it's just been great snow. I've gotten so much better. It's just been a really great week. Um, nice. So, yeah. So if you like listening to The Perspectrum and you feel like supporting us, head on over to our Patreon page. Um, we just launched it, and you can find it at patreon.com slash theperspectrum. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>